So, uh, as you're seated, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Um, Colossians chapter 1, for three-year-olds through kindergarten, we have Crossing Kids in the back where they can learn on their level during the sermon time. Got some ladies in the back that can take them uh, back there and have fun, and uh, also learn about Jesus. And then you as parents can go home and continue the discipleship. So you're asking them what they learned, um, what, who God is, what God has done, and then help them to begin to see, even at an early age, that uh, God loves them. And, um, and then for older kids, we do have worship uh, bulletins that they can follow along with the passage, do some activities on their age-appropriate levels to engage mentally while we're uh, hearing the Word of God taught. So those are also back in the um, foyer. You can pick those up even while we begin. But we'll be in Colossians chapter 1. Beginning verse 21, but let's, let's just pray right now and just ask for the Spirit's help. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that you um, inspired and gave us these words. They are the very words of God. And you have preserved them all these years so that we sit here today in 2015 with full confidence that we have the words of God, exactly what He wants us to have. To know Him, to love Him, to live for Him, to enjoy Him. So Holy Spirit, you're the author. We pray you would come and speak truth to our hearts this morning. We need you in our own minds. We can't understand this. So illumine your word. Teach us. Instruct us. Call us to repent of sins. Call us to believe in Jesus as you always do. You point us always to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. And then Holy Spirit, just do do work in us. We need it. Every single one of us need God working in us and through us to live life. And then, and then help us, Father, not just to, to leave it here, but help us to, to leave with it and to walk it out day by day because we are the church every day, not just right now. And so help us to do that as a family. And do it in a way that you get all the credit, nobody else does. You get all the glory, you get all the worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Colossians 1 is where we're at. We, we left off uh, with verse 20 about a, exactly a month ago today. So let's kind of think back through what we've already seen. For some of you who hadn't been here, you'll kind of be brought up to speed. Paul's writing this letter to a group of believers in the city of Colossae, a city that was a declining city. There were two cities close by, just 10 or 15 miles away, that were much more uh, predominant in that area. This is a declining city. It was not one of Paul's strategic cities. And so how did the church even get here if Paul hadn't targeted this church? Well, a man by the name of Epaphras uh, heard Paul preach the gospel, probably in the city of Ephesus. He comes alive in Christ, goes back to his little town of Colossae, and begins to tell people who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. People also come alive in Christ. Disciples are being made who make disciples, and a church is born. And that's the church of Colossae. They begin to have trouble, so there's some false teachers coming in. So Paul, uh, Epaphras contacts Paul and says, hey, Paul, I need some help. And Paul writes this letter to help him out to deal with the false teachers that were showing up in this church. And so Paul begins the letter by thanking them for the evidence of the gospel. They're in the first eight verses that he sees in them. And then in verses 9 through 12, he's walking through some prayers for them. So I'm, I'm praying for you to be filled with joy and bear fruit and have spiritual knowledge and walk worthy of the calling that you have received. And then he makes a transition in verse 13 where Paul turns his attention from them to God. So this is, I'm thankful for these these things. I'm praying for you. Now this is who God is, this God who has qualified you in Christ Jesus, this God who's 
transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then he goes on, well, who is this son? This son, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn. He is the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so Paul, right from the beginning, he's, he's dealing with the false teachers because these false teachers were coming along and they were saying, hey, Jesus is not enough. You need these other things to add to Jesus. He alone isn't enough for your salvation, for your spiritual experience. You need some Old Testament stuff, some mystical stuff. And Paul, from the beginning, is saying, here is this Jesus who, that you're now living in his kingdom. He is this image of the invisible God. Here he is, he is in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, this high view, this incredible song about Jesus, you're going to tell me he's not enough? You're going to tell me that he's not enough, not just for your salvation, but for your everyday spiritual experience? Oh, he is enough. There's nobody in the entire universe like him. There's nobody who's ever walked the face of the earth like Jesus. And so he is the basis, the foundation for your identity and your hope. And then he, in verse 19, he, he talks about this this big view of the gospel that God is carrying out. He says in verse 19, For in Him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him, through Christ, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And so this is the the cosmic view of the gospel, God working through Christ to reconcile all things back to Himself. And we talked about this a month ago, that this is not speaking about universal salvation for all human beings. That this is the big view of God, God working not just to reconcile those who have faith in Christ back to himself, but God working to reconcile even creation back to himself, to return one day all things back to that state of shalom, well-being, peace with God. And and guys, that's where we're headed. Like, uh, we can have full confidence that one day everything is going to be better. Everything is going to be better. It's always going to get better for Christians. Between now and then, it may feel worse and it may be worse for a while. But where we're headed, it's, it's going to be better. Um, and so that's who Christ is. That's this big view of the gospel. And it's important that we, we hold on to this big cosmic view of the gospel because especially in our culture, which tends to reduce the gospel to only a personal decision. So the gospel is simply, uh, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus so that when you die, you can go to heaven. And if you reduce the gospel just to that, and you miss the cosmic view of the gospel, then you think salvation is all about you. But we're part of this bigger story, as we've talked about all the time in the Crossing Church. And so, the cosmic view of the gospel is what Paul presents in verses 19 through 20, but, but don't miss it, the gospel is also very personal. And so look at the transition, verse 20, uh, verse 21 rather. And you, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Real simple uh, section of scripture here, three verses, three points, who we were, who we became, uh, who we become through Christ, and then what we do. First of all, who we were. Three terms Paul gives us in verse 21 that describe our condition before Christ. We were alienated, hostile in mind, 
and doing evil deeds. Alienation speaks of our uh, enmity against God, the fact that we are an enemy of God. Just like Paul read, uh, Scott read, Paul Scott, whoever you are, in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Hostility in mind speaks to the darkness that clouded us apart from Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4, In their case, the God, talking about the unregenerate, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this is a state in which we're born. It's a state that, that the enemy of God is involved in, blinding our minds, helping us not to see. Ephesians 4.18 says, They, Gentiles, those apart from Christ, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. And so this is a, a, a darkness, this is a futility of mind, an ability not to think or see the truth and reality of who God is. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that, that the, the natural man can't understand the spiritual things of God. They don't make sense to him. Apart from knowing the author of Scripture, you can't really understand Scripture except for academic only. And then this goes on to doing evil deeds. So doing evil deeds is the natural byproduct of being an enemy of God with dark minds and futility of thoughts. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among them, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creator rather than the cre- creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. So apart from Christ, this is all of our natural states. That we're born in a position of being an enemy of God. We're born as a rebel of God. We're born as someone who worships the creation instead of the creator. We, and we see this in ourselves. Even once we're redeemed, we're always tempted to place our identity, our joy, our hope, our love, to take things or people and make them supreme over the God who gave us these things. It's a constant battle. And so there can be those who know God, know that there is a God. There will never be anybody who stands before God one day and will say, I didn't know you existed. Paul says in Romans 1, they're without excuse. God has so revealed himself in creation that nobody can stand before him one day and say, I didn't know you were real. And then hold us all accountable because we have chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator. And in the futility of this thinking, we then do evil deeds. Right? We sin... Because we're sinners. Our sins don't make us sinners. We are sinners. And therefore we sin. I've been uh, sharing the Star Wars movies with my older girls. So before I introduce them, I asked a uh, buddy of mine, uh, what should I do first? Should I show them the first three that, that I grew up on that are world famous, wonderful? Or should I start them with the, 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 the last three that were actually episodes one through three, as you know, that tell the story in order that... Yeah, you know, I've seen them once because they're just awful, right? Uh, what should I do first? And so this buddy of mine asked a friend of theirs who they considered an expert, and he says, you need to help them to see the story. So start with episode one, start with the newest movies, and then move on from there. And I'm glad I did. So that's, that's really the way you should do it. Because our girls have been amazed. I've been amazed because I've only seen them once. I didn't really remember everything. 
at the digression of Anakin Skywalker. From this precocious, cute little boy, just full of the force, doing things that he didn't realize he could do, winning races and all this stuff, and saving the planet and saving the solar system, whatever, to this, this guy who's fallen in love, so they were all into this love story with Padme, and, and then he becomes the personification of evil, right? Like, in all movies, Darth Vader is one of the worst villains who has ever been in a story. How could, and they were heartbroken. How can this guy become this? And, and we live in a culture where many people think that's, that's how it works. We start off wonderful, good, pure as the wind-driven snow like Titus right now. They just can't get any better. And then through environment, circumstances, bad influences, mental illness, whatever, we become Darth Vader's. We become evil and sinful. But the Bible paints a little bit different picture. That we're actually born with a natural bent and inclination towards sin. We're born with a heart that runs from God. We're, we're born selfish. We're born self-centered. All you have to do is raise a few kids. You don't have to do anything to teach them how to sin. They just do it. They believe they really are the center of the universe. Right? But you have to work and work and work to get them to see that this is good and this is right and they should choose to do good and right and here's some consequences when they don't, hoping for the day that they come alive in Christ and they actually begin to love good and love right and love Jesus more than they love sin and selfishness. And this is, this is who we are. We're, we're biblically, well, I wouldn't say biblically, we're born as Darth Vader's. And so Paul paints a picture like this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. We all once lived. Paul says, me too. And the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is who we are. This is why we can be the most selfish and mean love the most right I mean I am fully committed to Jennifer made a vow before God family and friends for life divorce isn't even on the table fully committed to my girls held them in their most vulnerable moments of life would lay down my life tomorrow for all four of them and yet they get the worst of me I'm tired frustrated stressed anxious, worried, my insecurities come out, they get my worst. Like it'd be better if I just picked up the phone and called strangers and chewed on them a little bit, right? Or maybe call some of y'all. But they get my worst. That's how, that's how sick we are. That's how broken we are. And that's the redeemed me. That's the redeemed me. That by the grace of God, am growing and changing and, and, and not as I used to be, they would tell you, Right? This is the nature and natural condition of man apart from Jesus Christ. And despite massive advancements in education, technology, and medicine, and science, and communications, and food production, the world is still rampant with sin. Rampant with sin. It can't be fixed externally. It can only be fixed internally by the gospel. So another way of seeing our desperate need of reconciliation is by looking at who we become in verse 22. Verse 22 tells us, He has, Christ, now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Realizing that apart from this reconciling work of Jesus Christ, we are in fact not holy, not blameless, not above reproach. And this language Paul is using here is is language that Paul had been very familiar with. It's language of the temple. Old Testament sacrifices presenting us, presenting us as holy and blameless and above reproach. So so think about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Go back in your mind to, to that day where God instituted these sacrifices not to save His people. Nobody was saved because they offered a sacrifice because of their sins. Nobody was saved because a bull or a bird or a lamb or a goat was killed on their behalf. That wasn't salvation. That's not what brought reconciliation. It was instituted by God as a continual reminder of their need of a sacrifice. Right? So if you're doing a a read through the Bible plan, if you've done one before, you've probably just read through the second half of Exodus and Leviticus, and you've read just regulation after regulation, instruction after instruction, and detailed uh, um, um, instructions about sacrifices and when they would be offered as sacrifices and who the priests would be and how they would set the priests apart and how the priests would dress and how the priests would prepare themselves and what kind of animals could be offered for what kind of sacrifices and exactly what condition these animals would be in. And then when you bring the sacrifice, this is what you do to this animal. This is how you kill it. This is how you cut it into pieces. These are the parts that you burn. Here are the parts that you throw away. And it's just chapter after chapter after chapter of things that you needed to do to all of these animals year after year after year because you are sinful. Because you are sinful. It was an amazingly bloody spectacle. The priest looked more like a butcher than a pastor. Can you imagine all the blood from thousands and hundreds of animals being offered? Can you imagine the smell? of all these slaughtered animals. I mean, like the burning animals, that smells good, we get that, but the blood and the intestines and the innards all just being piled up and carried out. Like I worked in a meat market when I was in college, and it was a pretty sterile environment. You know, we used 180 degree water and industrial strength soap, and it was refrigerated, it's like you're working in a refrigerator all the time. And we cleaned constantly, but I still came home every night with this stench. I go hang out with my friends, or like, why don't you just go home first? Take a shower and then come hang out. Like, get those clothes off of you. Because it's in your clothes, it's in your hair every single day. Can you imagine the smell of all of these animals being slaughtered? And year after year, the people would come with these animals that had to be holy, set apart. They had to be blameless, no blemishes, visibly. And they had to have be above reproach, the best of the best. Now, we get killing animals, right? We live in the epicenter of rise, kill, and eat. But we kill animals for food. We kill animals to eat. Can you imagine standing in this long line of people with a lamb or a goat or a bird or a bull or a cow and you walk up to these these priests with this perfectly good animal and say, slaughter this animal, not for food, but because I'm selfish. Because I'm prideful. Because I'm a gossip. Because I'm mean. I'm not kind. Because I'm egotistical, I lust, I'm arrogant, I'm angry. Because I hate that person. Killed this perfectly good animal for that reason. I present this holy, blameless, above reproach animal to you to slaughter because I am unpresentable. 
as a sinner. The highest day of sacrifice was the day of atonement. Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16, the high priest would take two lambs that were spotless and no blemishes, holy, blameless, above reproach. And he would offer this sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, the actual dwelling place of the presence of God among his people, where the whole high priest would only come once a year to offer this sacrifice for the nation. Priests had to go through this elaborate cleansing ritual to make sure there wasn't any, any speck of dust on them or their clothes. No scabs, sores, or blood. They themselves had to be perfectly presentable. And then they take these two lambs and they offer one there in the Holy of Holies as a sacrifice to signify the atoning of their sins, the covering over their sins by the sacrifice, a substitution. And then he takes the other lamb and he sends him into the wilderness as a scapegoat to signify the, the separation of, of the people's sins from them. Our sins are being cast away from us. And before the priest would, would offer these lambs of sacrifices, he would place his hands on them to signify the, the transferring of their sins to the animals so the animals could then represent them. Again, no one was saved by these rituals. Hebrews 11 tells us in the Old Testament they were reconciled to God not through the sacrifice of the animals, but, but seeing that the sacrifice of the animals revealed their need of a sacrifice and that one day God would send the Redeemer. Genesis 3.15. Who would come? Who would be the final sacrifice? They, they were saved not by looking at the animals, but by looking forward in faith to the one who would come. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He alone was holy and blameless and above reproach in all that He did. He alone was presentable before God. And we, the ones who are unpresentable, we, the unholy, the blameful, the ones filled with reproach, we, the ones filled with blemishes, would lay our hands on the Lamb of God and transfer our sins to Him. And He, in turn, would transfer His record of righteousness to us. See this spelled out in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In His flesh, Paul tells us there in verse 22, the incarnation and by his death, the substitutionary sacrifice, he took his place. Just as the people in the Old Testament would present these animals and say, here, I'm sinful, kill this animal instead of me. I deserve to be killed because of my sin, because where there's sin, it brings death. God tells us in Genesis 3. So now offer this animal instead of me, so also Jesus offered himself instead of us that He would fully absorb the wrath of God for our sins so that we could be fully and finally reconciled to our Creator. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ has done. 
So here, Paul's plea to these believers, his plea to, be, to us, be overwhelmed and amazed at this man, Jesus, this high and exalted one in verses 15 through 20. There's no one like him in all the universe. He is supreme over all things so that in everything he might be preeminent and supreme. There's no one who's ever existed will ever exist like Jesus Christ. This same Jesus humbled himself through his death, through his life, through his resurrection, and was crucified for our sins because we were the enemies of God. Hostile in mind, alienated, doing evil deeds. And we were brought into God's family, made a friend of God, peace with God, a son and daughter of God, no longer an enemy, but a, but a family member. How can you believe in anyone or anything else above and beyond Jesus? How can you worship anything or anyone else above and beyond Jesus? How can you hope or find your joy or identity in anyone or anything else other than Jesus who alone did this for us and for the glory of His Father? Be amazed and overwhelmed by the reconciler, Christ. So what's our response? Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all the creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, just reading that, you may think that that's saying that my reconciliation, me being presented as holy and blameless and above reproach on Judgment Day, is dependent upon me continuing in the faith and the hope of the gospel. In other words, you have to keep believing because it's by your believing Continuing to believe that's going to make you reconciled to God. That's going to make you presentable to God. That's going to make you holy and blameless and above reproach. So it's up to you. Do more, try harder, grunt it out, make it happen. In other words, you're not in now, you're not reconciled now. If you do enough in the end, we'll see. We'll see. So I, so I ask you if that's what it says, and how do you know if you've done enough to be reconciled? When have you believed enough? When have you continued enough? When have you obeyed enough to be considered holy, blameless, and above reproach? I have a hospice patient who's dying, who's in a denomination that teaches that, and she's, she's living with this fear. She doesn't know. She hopes. She hopes that she's done enough. She's, she hopes that she's been in church her whole life. Now we know for passages like Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8.33-35, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's a rhetorical question. No one. It is God who justifies. We don't justify ourselves. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Paul goes on to name some other things, and ending with the conclusion, no one, nothing, and under all the creation, heaven or earth, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. So we know from that passage and other passages throughout the New Testament, Ephesians 1, the Gospel of John, several passages in the Gospel of John, that the doctrine of justification being declared just before God is not based on our works, but based on Christ's works who Christ is, what Christ has done. And we know that justification is not progressive, it's not a, a process where you hope enough has been done so that one day you're justified. It's instantaneous. It's a legal declaration about you. You're in the courtroom of God. 
You are guilty, deserving condemnation and death. Jesus steps in and takes your place. He then becomes the sacrifice for your sins. And in Christ, you are no longer condemned. Romans 8.1. That's declared by God. And once that's declared by God over you, that's, that's final. Even God believes in double jeopardy. You're not going to be tried for that again. We saw in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the, the way that we're born. So see the finality of salvation in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. I'm not raised up. I'm right here. What's Paul talking about? Raise me up. I'm not raised up in the heavenly places. In the mind of God, I am. In Christ, I am. It's already done. And I'm just living out the life that God's given me until He calls me home, and and then I actually will experience that. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast. There's no aspect of your salvation that you can boast about. Nobody's going to get to, to heaven and stand around the throne of Jesus Christ, King Jesus, and say, look what I did. Look, look what I accomplished by making it here. Nobody's doing that. So if Paul's not saying our reconciliation is based on our works, then what is he saying in verse 23 about the importance of continuing in the faith and the hope of the gospel? Well, There's one thing we know, Paul is not expressing doubt in these Colossians. He's not saying, well, this is who you were, uh, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and this is what Christ has done to reconcile you if, and I do mean a big if, we'll see, knowing you guys, if. That's not what Paul's saying. Look at what he's already said about these people in verse 2 of chapter 1. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. He's identifying marks that you don't just have and take away. Verses 3 through 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have faith. You have love. You have hope. Verse uh, verse 6. He says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since you heard it and you believed it and learned it from Epaphras. Verse 8, he says, He's made known to us your love in the Spirit. You can't love in the Spirit unless you have the Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you have been born again. You're part of God's family. Verse 12, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Paul is not wondering if they're going to make it. He has full confidence they're going to make it. He says in verse 5 of chapter 2, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. It will be more accurate to say that when Paul says, If you continue in the faith, and I'm sure you will, then thinking that he's saying if, and I don't know if you will or not, we'll see. So if Paul's not expressing doubt with, but confidence, then, then why would he even use this language? Like, why would the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write like this? Well, to a church tempted with false teachers who were tempting the people to place their confidence in not only salvation, but their everyday spiritual experience in someone or something other than Christ, Paul is writing this to remind them that it is their faith 
in the hope of Christ alone that makes them stable, steadfast, not shifting. It is their hope and faith in Christ. In fact, Paul was saying in verse 27 of chapter 1 that this hope is Christ. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. This hope is Christ. And so it's their faith in Christ, not their works, not the things they try to do apart from Christ. It's their faith in Christ alone that gives them confidence and stability and steadfastness to continue in the gospel. It's Christ and Christ alone who is the reconciler who makes us holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. Paul is not intending to scare them into continued obedience but to remind them of where their continued trust and faith must be placed, where their hope is, not in their works, not in their spiritual experiences, not in anything these false teachers are bringing to the table, but in this gospel that is moving throughout the world and changing lives and bearing fruit. So continue in that. Continue in the hope that you've received, Jesus Christ. Paul is not saying you can lose your salvation if you don't perform or you can mess up your salvation if you stumble. He's saying don't lose sight of who your salvation is with and where your confidence lies. It's in Christ. So continue to place your hope in Christ. Continue to have faith in Christ. So at the same time, though, we, we heed these passages. So he's also not saying... Uh, uh, enter a state of false security or enter a state of assuming your salvation. We heed passages like this, like uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So have confidence in Christ. It's Christ who does the work of salvation. It's not you. It's Christ who keeps you saved. It's not you. It's Christ who will present you holy, blameless, above reproach. It's not your works that make you holy, blameless or above reproach, but His. But don't, don't assume your salvation. Don't assume you're really in. We shouldn't push back on those verses and not, if we need to, examine ourselves. Because we all need to do that from time to time. Right? And so... Like our response should never be, are you a Christian? Well, of course I'm a Christian. What kind of silly question is that? I was baptized. I grew up in the church. I went to Sunday school. I even taught Sunday school. I sang in the choir. I give money to the church. I go pretty often. I read my Bible all the time. Of course I'm a Christian. Look at everything I do. Why would you even ask me that? It's kind of insulting that you would even ask me if I'm a Christian. But that should never be your response. Assuming salvation. The, the response is, Humble dependence with confidence in Christ. Humble assurance with confidence in Christ, not yourself. You don't save yourself by your obedience. You don't keep your salvation by your obedience. But you also don't assume you're saved because on one day you did something. Because you've done some things religiously. If you receive the new birth, if you come alive in Christ, you will persevere to the end. You will. It's guaranteed. God says in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will complete it, finish it. So if you truly have been born again, come alive in Christ, you will persevere to the end. What makes this tricky is people can appear to follow Christ for a season and never have genuinely received Christ. 
This is what makes us hard. Think of Judas. Follower of Christ for three years. He's right there among the twelve. The closest of the closest. Yet all along he was the son of the devil. And this was pointed out throughout the Gospels. Think of the disciples in John 6.66 that said many no longer followed him. And Jesus turned to his twelve and said, what about you? Are you going to leave me too? And Peter said, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And even in that passage, Jesus pointed out, there's still one among you who is the devil. All along, even though he was following Christ, he was of the devil. And John saw this. He sees this unfold and he saw a lot more throughout his life. And so John writes well in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Listen to how one writer puts it regarding this, this passage in verse 23. If it is true, the saints will persevere to the end, and that is true. Then it is equally true, the saints must persevere to the end. And one of the means which the apostle uses to ensure that his readers within the various congregations of his apostolic mission do not fall into a state of false security is to stir them up with warnings such as this. If your salvation is genuine, you will persevere to the end. And your response to these passages will not be you placing faith falsely in what you've done, but placing faith in Christ. I'm holding more on to Christ. It's Christ who's got me in. It's Christ who's going to finish this. My faith is in Christ. My hope is in Christ. That's what makes me stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope. Your perseverance and continuance is not the basis of your salvation, but simply revealing the reality of your salvation. Your Father in heaven wants you to know that you are His. He gave an entire letter so we would know. 1 John 5.13 I write these things, the the epistle of 1 John, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He does not want us to live in fear, wondering if we're in or if we're out, based on our sins or our righteousness. He wants us to live with assurance and peace. He wants us to know that we're His. The Holy Spirit lives in you, and so I ask the Holy Spirit, remind me continually that I'm His. Remind me of the Father's love. That in Christ I am His Son, I am His daughter with whom He's always well pleased. That our love, the Father's love for us is not shifty based upon our performance. It's constant because it's based on Christ's performance. And nothing can take you out of His hand. And so Holy Spirit, give me peace so I can be unleashed to give my life to spread the gospel. So I can be stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope. God has no desire for us to live wondering and questioning and afraid and fearful that if we're in or not. Salvation is His work. It's not yours. And so if you are His, then rest in Christ. Let Him secure your foundation as one built on the rock of Christ and not sand. Usually, genuine believers 
feel unsecure in their salvation because of unconfessed, unrepented sin. And so spend time in a few minutes openly confessing, repenting of your sin before your Father and be washed afresh and anew. Receive a new cleansing from the Father. Not because you've never been cleansed before, but because you want the joy of your salvation to be returned to you. And there might be some here, you really don't think you're born again. You really don't know if you've ever come alive in Christ. And this morning the Holy Spirit's pressing on you. And your response is the same response we all have continually. Repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from sin, turn to Christ. We live that every day. If the Holy Spirit's pressing on you that you've never come alive in Christ, respond in repentance and faith in Jesus. You cannot save yourself. You cannot change your own heart. Salvation is not about changing your behaviors, but having Christ make you a new creation. And so receive the new birth. Come alive in Him. And if Christ has done that in you, before you leave, let somebody know. Like publicly, unashamedly say, I think I came alive today in Christ. For the first day, I saw the reality, the awfulness of my sin. For the first day, I really saw the beauty of Jesus Christ, the glory of a sacrificial Savior. And for the first day, I really repented and believed in Him. And I think I'm a new person. Tell somebody. And in a few moments, share in the bread and the cup with us that represents the life and the death of our Savior who came to reconcile us back to our Father. Father, we are so grateful for who Christ is and what Christ has done on our behalf. We, we know that all we deserve is hell and all we deserve is condemnation and judgment. But for the praise of your glory alone, you choose to show grace and mercy. You choose to love. You choose to re- pursue us and turn us from rebels into worshipers. And all we can do is say thank you. All we can do is worship you. It's, how, do we, how do we pay that back? We can't, Father. And so overwhelm your people this morning with amazing gratitude at your grace toward us. Overwhelm us with what Christ has done to make us your friend, your son, your daughter. I pray for overwhelming peace to fill the hearts of every genuine believer that's in this room. And I pray for overwhelming conviction to fill the hearts of anyone who's not a genuine believer in this room. Call them out, Father. Pursue them. And make them alive. Give them the faith that they need to believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.